0: On your bulletin there on the inside, you'll notice the two paragraphs that we're looking at this evening for the confession. This, if you remember, last week we started uh, chapter 22 of the confession, and we made it through the first six paragraphs dealing with um, religious worship, the topic of worship, And, uh, and then we saved these last two paragraphs, which have specifically to do with the day of worship. And so if you remember last week, we talked about Uh, Things like the regulative principle, how do we know how we should worship, and we argued uh, from the scriptures, I hope, that the only way that we know how to worship is that God has told us how to worship him in his word. And so the way that we worship him should only be the way that God has prescribed his worship in his word. And that includes uh, the topic for this evening, the, uh, the day of worship, which is the Sabbath day or the Lord's day. Um, how many of you have read the Little House on the Prairie series, Laura Ingalls Wilder? One person, it's a couple people, um, the 15, 15, times you've read it? Wow, that's that's impressive. Has anyone here read a book 15 times? Okay, a couple people, yeah. Man, y'all are y'all are amazing. Well, in in the Little House in the Prairie," I've never read it, actually, but my, my kids have been going through it with, with Megan. And apparently, it paints the Sabbath day as a, and this is her telling, essentially the story of her childhood as a day in which you sat at home They were way out in the frontier, so they didn't go to church, but they sat at home, and you, you couldn't laugh or, or goof off. You sat there and you read the Bible or uh, sat in contemplation, consideration of of God's word all day. And it was a dreaded day for the children because they weren't allowed to do anything at all um, entertaining or or fun in any sense. They weren't allowed to laugh or uh, enjoy the the activities that they they liked. And uh, perhaps some of us have been raised in that sort of context where we think of the Sabbath like that, it's a day in which, basically, we are handcuff, handcuffed from enjoy, enjoying anything, uh, and essentially, it's a day in which we have to uh, survive, if, if we're, especially if we're not, we're not Christians, but um, we, we might have this image of, of the Sabbath as a day in which, basically, it means you, you are locked in to only uh, very, very serious contemplation of the Lord all day long without any talk of anything else or any laughter or any enjoyment. Um, and, and I will argue that the Lord's Day, the Sabbath day, is primarily given for us to contemplate and enjoy the Lord. That is the purpose of the Lord's Day, for us to contemplate and enjoy the Lord. But I will also argue that that doesn't look like Laura Ingalls Wilder in the frontier of her house, where uh, any laughter or uh, any sense of, um, of, of mutual um, Enjoyment of one another and of God's creation more broadly is prohibited. Others of us perhaps are raised in contexts where the Lord's Day uh, is completely separated from the Sabbath. Uh, so so maybe, maybe we've been raised in contexts that say the Sabbath, and we'll get into this, but the Sabbath was strictly a mosaic or an old covenant principle, ordinance, command, And in the New Covenant, the Sabbath has been completely done away with altogether, and now there is only this thing called the Lord's Day. And it's completely disassociated with the Sabbath. Uh, Maybe maybe we've grown up in that context. And I will argue this evening that that's not the case, that the Sabbath is actually a perpetual creation ordinance, um, and that it has shifted from the seventh day to the first day in the New Covenant for the believer. Um, Either way... Whether you're on the side of the spectrum of having been raised and even perhaps still thinking of the Sabbath in the Laura Ingalls Wilder context or in the it's been completely terminated context, I hope we'll see that the Sabbath is actually a gift from the Lord to us. Uh, Jesus reminds us that, that uh, man is not for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is for the Lord. I'm sorry, Sabbath is for man. It is, it is given to us for our good, for our blessing. And so hopefully we'll walk away this evening with some sense of gratitude to the Lord for giving us this thing called the Sabbath, Um, and particularly as it relates to the New Covenant Believer, the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day. So if you have a a bulletin or confession, you can look with me at this first uh, section, actually look with me first at the uh, outline of it. You'll notice that the first paragraph is uh, given the heading there, the biblical overview of the Sabbath. And then the second paragraph, the practical observance of the Sabbath. So the first paragraph is basically arguing for the principle of Sabbath. It's basically saying there there is a Sabbath. It was was originally the seventh day. It's now the first day. Um, And so let's look at that paragraph together, this first paragraph, and we'll work through it little by little. I'll begin by just reading this first sentence uh, in in this first paragraph. It says, It is the law of nature that in general a a proportion of time— by God's appointment, should be set aside or set apart for the worship of God. And in the second sentence, so by his word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, God has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy to him. All right, so that's um, not the clearest language, but, but this is the point. There is a distinction being made here between natural law and positive law. So if you look at the paragraph, you might notice that. It says, it is the law of nature that a general proportion of time be set aside. In other words, uh, do you remember some of the discussion of the light of nature and the law of nature from past weeks? There, there, is, there are certain things that God has written on the heart of every human being. Uh, every human being knows, according to Romans 1, that we are to worship God as our creator. Nobody else needs to tell us that. God didn't have to uh, give us the Bible in order for us to know that we should worship God, give him gratitude and praise as our creator. Romans 1 says that's the law of nature. Romans 2 says we have a conscience that God has given us, the law of nature on our hearts that tells us certain things are right and certain things are wrong. What the confession is arguing is that this law or this principle that we should set aside specific devoted time to God in worship— is a law of nature. It's it's written on the heart. Human beings know they owe God a particular appointment of time, appointed time for the purpose of worship. But then it goes on to say there's also a positive moral command, uh, a, a positive moral and perpetual commandment, it says. And what that means is, so you have the natural law that's written on the heart. So the question is, what's the difference between a natural law and a positive law? Again, these are not scriptural terms. These are terms that are used to help us understand scriptural concepts. But the confession is trying to help us understand something. There's the difference between a natural law and a positive law. The natural law, you you don't need God to give you the Bible or or additional revelation to know. You have it written on your heart. A positive law, you can only know if God reveals it, if he explains it to you. And what the confession is saying is, is that though we know we should appoint time to worship God, we wouldn't know what day that is or how we should do that if God didn't tell us how to do it. And the point is, God has told us that we should appoint a particular day for worship. But here's the question. Can that day ever change? So, uh, I'm sure many of us are familiar with Seventh-day Adventists or other Seventh-day Sabbatarians that would argue The seventh day Sabbath could never, ever change. But we, as believers, we argue, know the Sabbath, uh, well, at least from the perspective of the confession, we would argue the Sabbath has, in fact, changed days to the first day. How can that be? And the reason the confession starts with this distinction is because a natural law can't change. It's written on our hearts. It's it's unchangeable. It is something that God has written into the very fabric of what it is to be an image bearer of God. As an image bearer of God, God has so ingrained it into your being that you must appoint time to worship him. That's part of who you are. For the specific task of devoted, intentional worship, away from other activities. But what's not inherently part of our nature or natural law is that it must be on the seventh day. That's God's positive law. Everyone following that? So there is a natural law that can't change, but there's a positive law that God has added to the natural law, and that positive law is the specific day that he's allotted for the purpose of worship. Uh, I'm going to read an illustration by Jeremy Walker, which hopefully will make clear what I have muddled. Jeremy says, to illustrate, if having a lump of clay, so imagine a lump of clay in my hands, If I make one form, but for good and valid reasons, subsequently reshape it into a different form without taking from or adding to the clay, then I have not changed the substance of the material, simply its outward form. Similarly, there is one lump of Sabbath clay. In other words, there is one lump of this concept that we owe in appointed time of worship to God. The same from the foundation of the world as a law of nature. God from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, everyone following that? From Genesis uh, 1, really, Genesis 2, all the way to the resurrection of Christ. In that period of time, God gives that lump in the form of the last day of the week. But from the resurrection of Christ and, and onward, the Lord changes the substance into a new form. Same lump of clay, but it's changed from the substance of the last day of the week to the first day of the week. From the resurrection, Now it's the, res, the day of the resurrection of Christ, which is called the Lord's Day. The creation ordinance is altered in accordance with the new creation in Jesus Christ. And we'll, we'll work that out. But is everyone following the, the concept of the lump of clay? More or less, it's the same lump, but it takes two different forms. The original seventh day Sabbath is still the essentially same Sabbath, but it's now taken the form of the first day of the week at the resurrection of christ and the reason that's the case is because it is natural law that we set aside appointed time of worship but it's positive law when it comes to the specific day that's something that god has added to natural law uh, and can change with the change of the epoch or the era in biblical redemption so we're starting on a light note everybody following that Jumped right into Wednesday evening service on some pretty technical stuff, um, but, it, but it helps lay a foundation for where, for where we're going, uh, and, and that's the next letters B and C here work out that transition, um, moving from the original Sabbath day on the seventh day of the week to the Christian Sabbath on the first day of the week. Um, so let's look at the paragraph again. I'll, I'll continue to read through it, and this is moving on to, to letter B of the outline. So again, it says, God has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy, from, holy to him from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ. This was the last day of the week, from the beginning of the world. All right, so let me, let me present it in, in, uh, in the, the way that it's often uh, argued against. That was extremely confusing the way I just said that. Let me put it to you the way that people often argue against the Sabbath. So they would say, The Sabbath day is only a Mosaic ordinance, a Mosaic command. By that I mean the Sabbath day is only part of the covenant with Moses, the law of Moses. It began with Moses in Exodus 20, and therefore it ended with Moses at the arrival of Christ and the New Testament era. If the, new, if the Sabbath day began with Moses, then it would prove that the Sabbath day is not an, a perpetual or ongoing commandment from God. Uh, because what about prior to, to Moses? They would, they would say, since there's no command given prior to Moses and only at the time of Moses, therefore it can't be a perpetual command. It can't be something that goes beyond Moses. Otherwise, everyone prior to Moses would have been living in disobedience. And so they say, because it's given to Moses... At the time of Moses, it also ends with the time of Moses, at the coming of Christ, the end of the Mosaic Covenant. So, here's the question. Is that true? Is the, is, the, is the Sabbath day given only to Moses, or is there evidence that the Sabbath was in place prior to Moses? Because, here's the argument, if you can demonstrate that the Sabbath principle and the Sabbath ordinance was, was in effect prior to Moses— then what does that mean with regard to its perpetual nature after Moses? Wouldn't it imply that it also goes beyond Moses? If it was there before him, then it also goes beyond him. And especially if you can tie it all the way back to creation. What if you can tie the Sabbath rest, this concept of, of a Sabbath rest, all the way back to a command or an ordinance given by God at creation thousands of years before Moses? Wouldn't that suggest that the Sabbath also then goes All the way through creation beyond Moses. And I would argue, yes, that's the case. And yes, the Bible does show us that the Sabbath was in effect prior to um, prior to Moses, prior to Sinai in Exodus 20. So if you want to, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. These are familiar words to us, but also very important words. I'll read these first three verses actually of Genesis 2. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. And then if you jump over to Exodus uh, chapter 20. And you look at the specific command given to Moses, with regard to the Sabbath. Exodus twenty, verse eight. This is the fourth commandment, of the Ten Commandments. He says, "This is uh, the Lord giving the law to Moses. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no, you shall not do any work." you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So when did the Lord make the Sabbath holy? According both to Genesis 2 and Exodus 20, on the immediate, uh, in the immediate aftermath of creation. On the first day of the week, he, or on the last day of the week, sorry, he blessed the Sabbath. He made the last day of the week holy. And what Moses is saying, or what God is saying through Moses, is that the principle that is applied in the Mosaic covenant is nothing new. It's not, it's not something that's being created right here, invented right here at this moment in Exodus 20. It's something that goes all the way back to the very creation of the world. This is how God created the world, he blessed it, he, he sanctified the last day of the week because it's the day he rested on, and Moses is saying, God is saying through Moses, therefore this principle continues to be in effect, just as it was in Genesis 2, so also now, repeated again in the Ten Commandments, you are to rest, you are to make the Sabbath day distinct and set apart for the purpose of keeping it holy. And so, from those two passages, would you think that the Sabbath day began with Moses, that would be hard to argue, wouldn't it? People have attempted to argue that, but I think it's hard to argue. Uh, we could go to one other passage in the New Testament, which is Mark 2, 27 and 28. Uh, we, we, won't, we won't go there, but the, Jesus there is referencing uh, the fact that the Sabbath was made for man. He, he uses the word made or created. When was the Sabbath day created for man? It's going all the way back to creation. The, the seventh day was created for man, he says, and not man for the Sabbath And so the whole argument there is that the Sabbath is perpetual because it goes all the way back to creation, far preceding Moses. It's part of the creation, uh, the the structure of creation that we see from the very beginning of the pages of the Scriptures. There are other examples of things like that. So if you think about the New Testament and you think about certain instructions or commands that are given in the New Testament— there are often situations where a certain command or instruction is tied to creation. And the purpose is to show this, cre- this, this command or this instruction is something that is binding on humanity. You don't have the freedom to go about disregarding it because it's something that goes all the way back to creation. So, for example, um, in the discussion of divorce with Jesus, where certain people are trying to, to catch him and, um, and ask him questions about divorce, and he uh, the disciples later are discussing it with him, and he reminds them that God, God is his will is not divorce. God, God hates divorce, we read in the Old Testament. And the reason is that Jesus gives for why a man and a woman should not be divorced is, is because of what God said at the very beginning. He goes all the way back to creation in Genesis 2. And he says, uh, haven't you heard that the Lord said this? He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In other words, you're asking Jesus, Jesus, why, why is it that it's not God's will that a man and a woman be divorced? And Jesus would say, well, because it is a creation principle. God has established it from the very beginning that a man and a woman, when they're joined, would become one flesh. And what God has joined, no one should rent asunder. No one should undo and, and so the point is, how do we know that the, the, the ordinance of marriage is perpetual? Well, because it goes all the way back to creation. How do we know that the Sabbath ordinance is perpetual? Well, because it goes all the way back to creation. And we could see the same thing for gender roles in the New Testament when it comes to the, the roles that men and women have, particularly in the church. And the Apostle Paul goes a couple of times, both in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, he goes back to creation to make his point. And he reminds us of how it was that God created the man and the woman in his attempt to teach that it's perpetual principles that need to be applied still today. So, all of that is a lengthy, perhaps more lengthy than necessary, argument to say that the Sabbath is perpetual. Uh, it's, it's not a temporary command given only to Moses that then terminated with the Mosaic Covenant's uh, fulfillment in Christ. It's something that precedes him, Moses, and continues to be perpetual throughout creation. What's the purpose of the Sabbath? What is it that the Sabbath was intended to accomplish? And again, we see that in Genesis chapter 2, but actually I'm going to read the last couple of verses of Genesis chapter 1. Why the Sabbath? Well, we read in verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts by the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he had rested from all his work. So we see a common word over and over again, rested, he rested, he rested. The Lord worked six days, and then he rested. And of course, that's the idea of Sabbath. So the word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word to rest. Uh, The the whole idea is is rest. What does it mean for God to rest? Think about that for a moment. What does it mean that God rested on the seventh day? Certainly we know that it's not that God was exhausted or wearied from the six days of creation. He didn't need a break in order to to regain his strength. In the same way that we need a break to regain our strength, that's that's not the purpose for which God rested on the seventh day. Why did God rest on the seventh day? I think it's connected to the last verse of chapter one. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. How, I'm sure I'm, this, this probably applies to all kinds of contexts, but uh, there, there have been projects in my home that I've worked on, let's say painting a room, where I have, I'll use a better example, painting cabinets. i painted the cabinets of my home, uh, previous home in Fairlawn, and it took an all day, two, two full days to paint the cabinets. There are so many different ins and outs of cabinets to paint that it is an absurd task. And, and so, two very long days of work. I finally finished uh, late at night. It was probably like 11 o'clock at night. And, and physically I was exhausted, but I didn't go right to bed because instead I stood in the kitchen and just admired it. And <laughs> and just enjoyed what I painted because it looked good. It went from these like terribly ugly yellow cabinets, sorry if you have yellow cabinets, these really ugly yellow cabinets that were there before to these very nice white cabinets. And, and finally the kitchen looked like it belonged together, uh, the different components of the kitchen, and I admired the work. Maybe you've done the same thing with uh, a a paper that you've written. You've spent hours and hours writing a paper. You finally have all ten pages complete, and you just kind of look at the paper and admire, admire the finished product. Um, We could do that cleaning. Uh, How many of you have cleaned the house and just walked into the living room and just smiled and thought, "Finally, like the house is clean." Um, Mowing the lawn—that was always super satisfying mowing the lawn as a kid, that was one of my chores. I still mow the lawn today until my kids are old enough to do it. But um, mowing the lawn and then just sitting back and looking at the nice lines and seeing a finished mowed lawn. Uh, it's satisfying. I think that's what it meant for God to rest on the, fir- on the last day of the week, on the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. I think it was him having done a wonderful work. And then in a sense, uh, this is speaking um, in human terms, with regard to God, but the Bible does it. In a sense, he stepped back and he just delighted in what he had made. He admired his work, and more specifically, he admired the glory of himself displayed in his work. And so what does it mean for us to rest on the Sabbath? I think that's important for us to, to understand. what does it mean for God, and what does it mean for us to keep the Sabbath holy, to set it apart? to sanctify it, to make it distinct from all of the other days in our week. I think it looks like that in a lot of ways. We, we, we step away from the busyness of all the other stuff going on in life so that we can intentionally admire, not the work of our hands, but the work of God's hands and his being, his character, his goodness, especially in redemption, as we'll see in the New Testament. Uh, we, we, we take a day to just admire and appreciate and celebrate the goodness and the glory of God in the things that he has made, in the God that he is, and in the redemption that he's accomplished. And so we are to pattern our own rest after the Lord's. Originally, that was seventh-day rest, because God had created the world in six days. And then on the seventh day, he rested. But that seventh day is no longer the day in which we recognize and remember the Sabbath. We now do so on the first day. And uh, so on the outline there, you'll notice after the original Sabbath day, letter C, the Christian Sabbath. The seventh day Sabbath has been abolished. Now we, we recognize the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day. Why is that? Where, where is this coming from? Well, on the one hand, I've argued that because the Sabbath precedes Moses, it didn't end with Moses. So, so there must be a continued Sabbath for God's people. But why do we now remember it on the first day and not the seventh day? And I think the, the key to understanding it is understanding what it means that Jesus inaugurated a new creation. So there, there, the purpose for which Jesus came into the world was to inaugurate a new creation. And ultimately to consummate a new creation. And why did he have to do that? Because the original creation was ruined by sin. It was devastated by sin. Uh, It is now a creation that is characterized by sin and suffering and death. Jesus came to inaugurate a new creation, one that would be characterized by life and righteousness and peace and joy and uh, eternal enjoyment of God and perfect fellowship with him. He came to inaugurate a new creation. And as believers, the moment we are united to Christ is the moment we enter into this new creation. We're, we're in the new creation as believers. We are part of the new creation that Christ has inaugurated, and we are longing for the ultimate fulfillment of the new creation, the consummation of the new creation at the return of Christ. But we are right now as believers in his, in his new creation. We belong to a new creation. We're no longer part of the old creation in the same sense. We are still in these bodies, we still live in this world, but spiritually we have been transferred to a new realm of existence in Christ, which is the new creation. And those aren't my words, those are the Apostle Paul's words. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Apostle Paul says in verse 17, "...therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new new creature," which is literally a new creation, and, and it actually reads, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. That's, that's what you are. That's what you're a part of now. If you're in Christ, you are a part of a new creation in him. One that is characterized by his life and his righteousness and his eternal kingdom. And the same thing in uh, Galatians 6:15, if I'm not mistaken, it says, neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's what matters. Are you part of the new creation? Have you put your faith in Christ so that you are transferred out of the old realm of existence in sin in order to belong to this new realm of grace, which is the new creation of Christ? Paul says, if you have, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you're united to him, then you are part, not of the old creation any longer. That's not your true identity, but you're part of the new creation in Christ. All right, why does that have anything to do with the Sabbath day? What does this new creation have anything to do with the fact that I am arguing that there is a thing at such, uh, such a thing as, as a Christian Sabbath? Well, if you think about it, if there was an original creation, and that original creation had a Sabbath day, because in six days the Lord worked, and on the seventh day he rested from all the works of his creation, then what if there's a new creation wouldn't there also be a new rest day if there was a new creation? If the old creation is passing away and we've been brought into a new creation, wouldn't we expect there also to be a new creation ordinance of rest on the Sabbath day? And if, and if that is the case, then which day would we find that Sabbath on? Well, if, if in the original creation God worked for six days and rested on the seventh, then on what day did Jesus accomplish his work of recreation, and on which day did he enter into his rest? Is everyone following the logic? On, let me ask that, then someone threw out the answer. On which day did Jesus enter into his rest of creation, of new creation? The day of what? Yeah, I, certainly in a, in a sense, that's when he ascended to be with his father, but even prior to that, His resurrection. That is the day that the new creation was definitively inaugurated. That, that, If there is one point in all of creation, in all of redemptive history, at which the new creation uh, penetrated this world, and the powers of the age to come were, were demonstrated in undeniable uh, clarity, it was the resurrection of Jesus. It was his declaration that the death characterizing the old creation had been overcome, and that a new creation of life had begun. A new creation of power in Christ, and that was the first day of the week. And so as believers, we look back not just to an original creation, but even more specifically, we look back to a work of new creation where Jesus worked for our redemption, and he was crucified. But then on the first day of the week, he entered into his rest when he was raised from the dead, and the new creation was inaugurated. And so that's, I think, the essential theological argument for why we would recognize the Sabbath on the first day of the week now rather than the seventh, and I think with good reason, because it's not only a theological argument that would lead us to that, but it's also the, theologi- uh, the uh, biblical pattern that we see in the scriptures. So not only does it theologically make sense, and, and a good passage to go to, what time is it? Seven ten. If you want to turn there really quickly, uh, Hebrews chapter 4 is a, is a really good passage on this. I, I s- will probably regret going there because I don't think we have time to really consider it. But it is a really helpful passage, and I can um, point you to some good resources to help explain what I'm not going to be able to explain tonight. But if you look at Hebrews chapter 4, the whole chapter is about rest. And, and the argument is, there is a greater rest awaiting the believer, and we are by faith striving to enter into that ultimate rest in Christ. And so we're pressing on through faith in Christ because we know there is a, there is a day coming in which we will enter into ultimate rest with him in, in the fullest sense of spiritual life to its fullest, physical life to its fullest when we are in the presence of Christ our King. We're striving for that rest through faith in Christ so there's a rest waiting for us. But, but there's, a, there's an argument that's made in Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. In other words, uh, the land of Canaan did not give the, the ultimate rest that God promised. There's, there's, there's more rest to come because after, after Joshua, someone else, David in the Psalms, he promised rest. And this was long after Joshua. So there must be another rest that we're waiting for. And the writer of the Hebrews is arguing that rest is the ultimate rest that is fulfilled in Christ that we're longing for. And he says in verse 9, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Who has an ESV translation? It says whoever, right? In verse verse, uh, 10, it says for whoever has entered his rest— NASB says, for the one who has entered his rest. Everyone seeing that in verse 10? So whether it says whoever or the one, I would argue, and I don't have time to show you why I would argue, but I would argue, and I think rightly, I'm always right, um, but in this case in particular, I would argue that the one or whoever is best translated as the one, and it refers to the one with a capital O, Jesus. Jesus. And what it's saying is we're pressing on to enter into this rest through faith in Jesus. We are longing for the eternal rest. Well, how do we know that that rest is is available to us? Well, because we know there's a Sabbath rest remaining for us. We know there's this rest for us. How do we know that? Well, because the one Jesus Christ, he has entered his rest. He has completed his work and he has entered his rest just as God completed his work at the very beginning of creation and entered his rest. The writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus has completed his work and he has entered into his rest on the first day of the week. And as believers, through our union with him, there remains a Sabbath day for us in the sense that now we remember one time a week that we are destined for that rest, but even more so, there's an ultimate Sabbath rest for us and we're longing for that. And we know we'll enter it because Jesus has entered his rest. And so I think, again, I don't have time to get into all the details, but I think Hebrews 4 is a good argument for the first day of the week being the Sabbath rest of the new creation. It's the day that, that Jesus had entered into his rest after completing the work the Father had given him to do. And so it's the day that we rest, remembering uh, his work on our behalf and anticipating the, the coming rest that's promised to us in him. All right. So we'll go quickly through this next section, the pattern of the New Testament. Um, I think the pattern just confirms the theological concept. So I think the theological concept demonstrates that the first day of the week is the Lord's day, is the Sabbath day, but I think the pattern of the New Testament also demonstrates that uh, because we see over and over again emphasis given to the first day of the week. First of all, of course, it's the letter A there on the outline. It's the day of Christ's resurrection. Five times in the gospel, we're told that on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead. Five times we're told on the first day of the week. You know how many times other days of the week are specifically mentioned in the Gospels? There's the Sabbath mentioned a couple of times, but do you know how many other days by number are mentioned in the the Gospels? Zero. But five times, the writers of the Gospels emphasize that it was the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. And then... And then not only that, but it's, it's, the, it's said again and again in the Gospels that it was the first day of the week that Jesus met with his disciples. So if you look at the different encounters of Jesus post-resurrection with his disciples, on what day of the week was it? Well, Luke 24, it was the first day of the week, the day of Christ's resurrection, when he met with the two disciples on the road, and then when he met again with his disciples that night. But then John 20, 26, says eight days later, after the first day of the week of Jesus' resurrection, eight days later, Jesus met with his disciples again. In Jewish culture, how many, uh, how long is eight days? It's, it's one week. Because if today's Wednesday, next Wednesday, is Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, eight days. It's an include. They, they count it inclusively. And uh, in Latin America, I think, is the same way. Uh, next Sunday or next Wednesday from now is eight days from now because it's Wednesday today and tomorrow's Thursday so you're starting on two. Um, so, so when John says that eight days later Jesus met with his disciples, he means the first day of the week. Why does he emphasize that? I, th- I think there's a point we see the pattern again in the, and again in the New Testament that Jesus is meeting with his people on the first day of the week. We see the same thing on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When was the Holy Spirit poured out on the church the day of Pentecost? It was the first day of the week. That was the day of Pentecost. The early church, when did the early church meet together for worship? Well, I think you can argue very uh, convincingly from Acts 20 verse 7. They came together on the first day of the week to break bread. That means they came together on the first day of the week to take the Lord's Supper together. It was formal worship together on the first day of the week. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, they, they gave their offering, or they were told to, to lay aside an offering on the first day of the week. Probably Paul's saying that that was happening as the church was together. They're putting aside an offering as a church on the first day of the week. So the whole point being, the pattern of the New Testament suggests the first day of the week is the day set apart to remember the, the Sabbath, the, the new creation rest of Christ. And then uh, in Revelation 1, this Sabbath day, the first day of the week, is called the Lord's Day. I won't get into the uh, details of that, but it's important to recognize uh, Jesus says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. John calls the first day of the week the Lord's day. All right, well, we've gone longer than I had hoped uh, in that first section. We'll just go very quickly through these last five uh, letters here. The practical observance of the Sabbath. Um, Preparation. So if we I'll just read this from the the paragraph. The the Sabbath is kept holy to the Lord when men, after an appropriate preparation of their hearts and prior ordering of their ordinary affairs, uh, prepare for the day. So, uh, in other words, the Lord's Day is important. The first day of the week is important. We should try to make uh, preparations as best we can to take full advantage of the gift that God has given to us on the Lord's Day. Uh, That can be taken to an extreme, and we shouldn't take it to an extreme. Uh, We should... I'm not, I'm not saying that it's wrong to prepare a, a decent meal on Sundays. Um, I read something, in, uh, I think it was either this morning or yesterday, of, I'll read it here. This is um, a lady who's trying to explain, and, and I think probably with perfectly fine motives, but she's trying to explain how she prepares for the Sabbath day, the, the, the Lord's day. And she says, I try to prepare meals ahead of time. The evening before the Sabbath, pop breakfast into the crock pot. Plan to have a simple lunch, like sandwiches or leftovers. Dinner can be simple, too, or make dinner the day before. So all you have to do is reheat it. If you're really organized, you can just pull a prepared meal from the freezer. It all takes just a wee bit of planning. Um, I think that's fine. If people want to do that, I think that's fine. Making preparations like that and having sandwiches for lunch on the Lord's Day, that's, that's fine. But I don't think we should assume that preparation for the Lord's Day means we have to have sandwiches for lunch on Sundays. There's nothing particularly wrong with sandwiches, but in, uh, in Nehemiah 8, verses 9 to 10, talking about how the, the Lord's day is to be kept, it says it's a day of celebration, and it talks about a feast, like eating good food on the Sabbath, uh, and, and drinking good drink on the Sabbath, and celebrating and remembering with joy the work of the Lord. And so I think we need to be careful about uh, painting a picture of the Sabbath as if uh, any sort of preparations would be a breaking of the, of the Lord's day, uh, Sabbath. I, I don't think that's a, an accurate application given some of the other evidence in the scriptures like Nehemiah 8, verses 9 to 10. Um, but we should prepare. I mean, the point is you want to put some effort into preparing for the day so that you really can give as much attention as possible to what the Lord's day is for, which is remembering and resting and rejoicing and anticipating the rest that Christ has given us. Uh, it's a day of holy rest We're ceasing from our labors. We're laying aside the normal uh, occupations that would earn an income or be productive in uh, the normal affairs of life. We're laying those things aside in order to rest. We're ceasing from labor um, in order to to set apart time specifically to rest and remember. Uh, And then thirdly, public and private worship. Uh, So basically the point is the Lord's day is a good day, not just to come to corporate worship, but also to take time at home, uh, to to read the scriptures at home, to pray uh, perhaps an additional amount of time because you have the opportunity. You don't have the pressing demands of your week uh, of work and obligations and responsibilities pressing on you to the same degree that they do Monday to Saturday. So you set apart time to to read and pray and fellowship in ways that uh, you wouldn't be able to on other days of the week. Acts of necessity and mercy are other ways to... Enjoy the Sabbath to, to remember the Sabbath. That's coming from Matthew twelve. Uh, both the disciples picking grain and then Jesus healing the man with the withered hand. Both of those things happen on the Sabbath. One is necessity, the other is mercy. And then the confession makes a statement that there's no recreation uh, to be had on the Sabbath. And and this is one of those phrases that I think we need to be careful about in the way that we apply it. Um, it's if you know, actually uh, yeah if you notice on the bulletin there there's a reference to Isaiah fifty eight. 13, and that's the primary passage where this instruction is coming from. So, if you look over at the confession, it says, uh, the paragraph says, observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations. So, basically, um, that, that's, that's a almost verbatim, uh, the, well, those three works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment, those three come almost directly from Isaiah 58, verse 13. Um, let's go there for just one minute and and we'll finish with this uh, because I think it's important because this is one of those practical things that I want to be careful with in terms of how we apply the, the Sabbath day the Lord's day Isaiah 58 verse 13 this is where this sentence is coming from in the confession it says if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight the holy day of the Lord honorable and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, and speaking your own word. Okay, so can everyone see where that's coming from in terms of the confession? Those last three, you desist from your own ways, your own pleasure, and your own words. The confession says uh, basically your own works, words, and thoughts about worldly employment and recreations. So this verse from Isaiah has been taken to mean basically uh, anything that has to do with, with um, personal delight, enjoyment, pleasure should be put aside on the Sabbath, and, and only those things which are formal, uh, specific expressions of worship are acceptable, the means of grace. I think we need to be really careful with that because I don't think that's what Isaiah's um, Isaiah is saying. Isaiah in chapter 58, he's talking about an abuse of the Sabbath. The rest of the chapter has to do with Men who were um, basically treating their servants harshly, oppressing their servants, beating them, striking them, violently treating them uh, in, in a way that dishonored the Lord. And then when it came to the Sabbath day, they were fasting and praying and seeking the Lord, and they were confused about why the Lord wasn't hearing them. They didn't understand. They were doing everything right on the Sabbath. They, they, were, they were humbling themselves, apparently, before the Lord, crying out to him, asking for his blessing, but he was silent, and he wasn't answering them, and they were confused. Why is the Lord not answering us? And the Lord is saying, it's because this is what you're doing. You're abusing your authority. You're oppressing your servants. You're making them work, most likely, on the Sabbath day. And then you're coming, and you're saying, Lord, we're worshiping you on the Sabbath day. Why won't you hear us? And what the Lord is saying in Isaiah 58, 13 is, you want to be blessed on the Sabbath? You want the Sabbath to be a blessing? Then put away your own pleasures. Put away your own ways. Put away your own thoughts, your own idle, empty words. They mean nothing to me because you're, you're acting wickedly. And so what he's saying is put away these, these perverse, wicked ways that are according to your own pleasure, this, uh, this oppression of your servants. Put those things away and then come and worship me on the Sabbath and you'll be blessed. And so the only point I'm making there is you want to be careful to exclude to, to say that all recreation is excluded based on that verse. Um, I think there are healthy ways to recreate, to recreate on the Lord's day uh, that would be beneficial to our souls and to our bodies. Uh, and and I don't think we should draw a strict hard line on what is and what is not recreationally acceptable on the Sabbath, though we should give thought to it. Is the particular recreation that we're enjoying helpful to our souls? Is it helpful to our bodies? with regard to worship, and if it's not, then we should uh, probably not pursue it, but there are many recreational activities, especially when done with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that actually serve to refresh and give us the kind of rest that God has promised us in Christ, and so we want to be careful not to draw too harsh of a line. We have picnic fellowships on Sunday evenings often, and cornhole is occasionally played, and when uh, Rick Sarge is there, so is that chipping game, Uh, so with the golf club. Anyway, uh, obviously there's, there's certain measures of recreation happening, but I would argue it's fellowship. It's for the good of our souls. It's being refreshed in the enjoyment of the fellowship and union that we share in Christ through activities like that. At the end of the day, I'll end with this very briefly, we should be careful not to miss the forest for the trees. Uh, we should be careful that we, we don't try so hard to paint all of these specific details with regard to the Sabbath that we miss the point. The point is Christ has entered his rest, and by union with him, we in a sense have entered that rest, and we are longing for the ultimate rest, and one day a week we pull away from the busyness of life to remember and to rest in and to reflect upon and to anticipate the the, the ultimate rest that Christ has achieved for us through his work and his resurrection. That's what the Lord's Day is ultimately about. All right, let's pray, and then we'll sing. Father, we do thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. God, we we acknowledge before you that that defines, characterizes all of us. Apart from your grace, we are lost in our sins and hopeless and helpless. We thank you that Christ came to accomplish a wonderful work, and that he entered into his rest, having accomplished the work of redemption for us. And we thank you that by our union with him now, we get to enjoy the rest that he has accomplished for us. And uh, Father, we do long for and we anticipate that ultimate rest that is ours through Christ. Um, We pray that you would help us to rejoice in it even more and help us to be wise and, um, and careful in the way that we go about remembering the Lord's day and seeking to benefit our souls through it, through the gift that you've given us of a day set apart to worship you and to rest. Pray that you would bless our church as we gather this coming Lord's Day on Sunday morning. God, that you would use it as a time to strengthen our souls and to refresh and to give us the rest that is ours through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.